Well, it's uh, bang on quarter past three, so we'll begin. But just before we do, I wanted to thank uh, the people from the library who've put together that, I found, fascinating uh, uh, collection of documents from the past and wonderful pictures of both uh, Lord Robbins and uh, the other members of the committee and what happened afterwards. I think it's a very useful thing to... uh, If you haven't looked at it properly already, please do so. Uh, Now, this morning, um, we saw how Robbins sort of exploded the boundaries of higher education in this country. And, of course, the same kind of thing happened uh, in other countries to a greater or lesser extent, as we heard. And, of course, that had huge financial implications, which, as again we heard this morning, weren't entirely foreseen by the committee itself, but they've had enormous ramifications. And so this is what this session is going to be about, the finance of higher education, how we pay for that expansion and its continued expansion and quality. And we're going to begin with Richard Yelland, who is from the OECD and has done some extremely good work comparing uh, higher education finance Uh, throughout the OECD. And with that comparative beginning, I'll hand over to Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much. I should say that it's my colleagues who've done the exceptional work, not me. Um, When the Robbins report was published... I'm going to indulge in a few sort of personal, slightly personal international perspective. Um, I had just entered grammar school, and I have to admit, though, that its publication um, at a time when the Vietnam War was raging and Christine Keeler, whose activities I was aware of but did not fully understand, was in the news, and the Beatles, I was a bit more clued up with them, They were in the headlines, and the Robbins report passed me by entirely. But it seems, as I was thinking about this event, that much of my life since then has been engaged, if not with the report itself, with the themes it evokes. Um, And so I hope you'll forgive me cheating a little by giving you a somewhat personalised perspective on international trends. After all... You can read the books. All the data I'm going to show you is publicly available, and I am conscious that some of you in the room are going to have difficulty seeing the slides anyway. They will help as props, but they are not absolutely essential to the argument, the main points I will bring out. Um, I'm also, um, I suppose, to some extent, reflecting the what I, for want of a better word, and I've asked a couple of people, still regard as the consumer perspective on higher education, um, which is too often overlooked and sometimes denied altogether. If only can come up with a better word for the sorts of things that Graham was talking about just before we broke, then please let me know. Stakeholder I will not accept. Um, so when eventually I went to university, it was in 1970. I was the first in my family to do so. And a majority, remember this was a grammar school, majority, though far from all of my friends, took a similar path. Some extremely able students chose to join a bank, the police, 
British Rail, I think it was called British Rail then, um, all of which offered well-paid jobs with career prospects to A-level students. But even then, most of us, for, for most of my group, it was leaving home for university, and few returned as children to the family home after that. There's a very important point about um, British higher education at the time. Now, what have we got here? Um, the expansion of higher education across the OECD has been substantial and almost ubiquitous in the past 50 years, but the pace has been very varied. Now, what this chart shows is some um, relative movement. So on the y-axis, we've got the difference between the tertiary attainment of 25 to 34-year-olds and the 55 to 64-year-olds. So it's a 30-year span, if you like. And of the... It does. Career is the standout. And this, bit of, this causes tremblings in, in the United States where we've been overtaken by the Koreans. Um, UK doesn't do too badly. You're in here. You're just in this quadrant of high attainment and an increasing advantage. Now... This graphic uses tertiary attainment of older people now as a proxy for what it was then. So it doesn't really take a proper account of those who get their qualifications as adults, but it's the best we can do. Um, this one takes a slightly shorter time scale. I should say that all of these charts you can find, if you look up the Education at a Glance 2013, um, you, there's a slide share presentation. It's all there for you. So you have a rapid pace of expansion um, pretty well everywhere. I'm not quite sure. Anybody here from New Zealand? Why it's gone that way? Um, sorry, that one is New Zealand. And this is what we call, and I have to use this jargon, the tertiary type A higher education. So these are... Shorthand, the university degrees, the three-year degrees, completion of which will qualify you to continue to a higher degree, basically. Um, and I do also acknowledge that, as uh, David Watson pointed out, we deal, for better or worse, in national averages. So we make broad sweeping statements about the United Kingdom or the United States, which, um, but that's where we are, that's where education at a glance is. So, go back to 1970. I received a full grant. It was enough. I left university with no debt. I also had a job, which was in the Department of Education and Science. Um, so my undergraduate years had seen uh, the aftermath of the Garden House riot. Now, apology for 1968. The three-day week. The publication of a framework for expansion, Margaret Thatcher's white paper, but the day I joined the civil service was the 10th of October 1974. I will never forget it because it was the day of the second general election in 1974, which gave Harold Wilson a majority of three, I think. Um, I was 22, and it wasn't unusual to be starting a career at that age. And that's not totally irrelevant to funding policy. Now... Um, 
when you take the whole of higher education, there are a lot of mature students in the United Kingdom. But if you look at the tertiary type A, you will see that it's right down here. I'll read it up. The average age of um, graduates at what is technically known as ISCAD level 5A is 24. It is the lowest in the OECD. The system here is one which is very efficient at getting people through their first degrees. I think if we took, you, took Scotland out, it would probably be even lower, actually. Um, two years after I joined the civil service, Dennis Healy was constrained to accept the IMF's conditions for a loan, and I was helping more senior officials cost options for previously unthinkable measures, including charging fees to overseas students. Um, I can, one anecdote from that time. Um, I still, it's a few years later, we, cuts in higher education funding didn't really hit the sector until about 1981. Um, and I still remember over lunch with a colleague, a contemporary from the Ministry of Defence, I hope he's not in the room, I doubt it, um, bemoaning the damage that a £180 million worth of cuts, I think it was, um, would do and how it was being wasted on early retirement <coughs> payments to academics who would accept them, perhaps because they had the, the offer was too good to refuse if you were just over 50, um, and then come back and do the same thing and consult with somebody else. And he simply said, £180 million, we wave goodbye to that every time we misfire a Polaris. I think, I don't know how many times that happened, it's probably a, a state secret, but um, I learned something then about the relative importance of higher education funding. Um, let's go here. In 2010, OECD countries devoted an average of 6.3% of their GDP to educational institutions, and of that, around a quarter goes to tertiary education. So the average is 1.6%, 1.7% of GDP. The range, however, is large, from less than 1%, and Italy is around 1%, Brazil and Hungary at that end as well, to almost 3 all the countries which are investing more than 2% of GDP in tertiary education, and this is tertiary education, rely heavily on private contributions. The highest levels of public investment are in the Nordic countries. Um, I think one comment, if we're talking about how higher education should be financed, to keep a political balance would be it doesn't really matter whether you're one of these or one of those, but you don't want to be one of those um, if you're thinking about investing for skills and growth in the 21st century. In nearly all countries, expenditure per student rises with the level of education, and sometimes very sharply. So you have over here Brazil and Mexico... In fact, it's typical of the developing countries that they put huge amounts of money into small numbers of students, and they're, they're, there are good reasons for that. Um, but it is generally the case that tertiary education will cost more 
than primary education. The, the norm, the 100 here, is the primary. There are some countries where it doesn't, interestingly. Iceland, Slovenia, slightly more. Despite uh, what many believe, the change in expenditure um, after or as a result of the crisis as a proportion of GDP was not drastic. It's only in a minority of countries that it failed to rise. So the changes in gross domestic product are the yellow bars, and a lot of them it went down between 2008-2010. Expenditure in educational institutions, therefore as a percentage, was still actually going up in most countries. The ones where it went down, Chile, but that had a big rise in, in GDP at that time. Hungary, Italy, Iceland, and just the Russian Federation and the United States. So in fact, most of the European countries, is, it, it continued to go up. Um, now, these are figures for education as a whole, and like most of what I'm showing you, they relate to 2010. One of our um, constraints is that there's a trade-off between comparability and timeliness in matters of international comparison. Um, If you look just at tertiary education, it's still more often the case that expenditure per student has risen rather than fallen in recent years. As Chile, which stands out here, was starting from a low base and has seen both a big rise in GDP and a big rise in student numbers. Um, Expenditure per student was up, but albeit not enough to satisfy students, and you'll have seen some of the press coverage of that. Now, what starts to get interesting in the UK context is spending from private sources. Um, The yellow bars here are private contributions to primary, secondary and post-secondary non-tertiary education and the MOVE bars are tertiary education. And you see that the UK is one of the countries where it has been growing particularly fast. We Over here on the right we have Chile, United Kingdom, Korea, Japan, United States, <coughs> Australia, Israel, Canada. Um, let you absorb that one for a little bit. Yes, that's the one. And so that share has actually. This is, this shows you how it's been increasing, overall from 24% in 2000 to 32% in 2010, and in the UK it will have gone higher since then. So I that means at this point I should say a few words about tuition fees Um, in almost any country where fees are low or non-existent it is um, a courageous minister who dares put the subject on the table despite the evident truth or the evident truth to economists that free higher education almost inevitably means the less well off subsidising the better off and social discrimination being reinforced. 
Poland is but one example of a country where the legal barriers to charging by public institutions have helped promote the growth of a huge private sector of very varied quality. I think um, you'll all be familiar with the arguments for cost sharing. I won't go into this further. Um, Nicholas Barr knows the topic far better than I ever will, but there is a full discussion in which he is quoted amongst others in our um, publication Tertiary Education for the Knowledge Society from 2008. OECD has promoted the charging of tuition fees in principle since at least the time of the introduction of um, HECS, the Higher Education mm. Contribution Scheme, in Australia. I can remember when um, John Dawkins came to OECD to talk about that. There were sharp intakes of breath and shaking of heads and um, it'll never happen here, but I, there were also a, a very large number of interested questions and follow-ups uh, from quite surprising countries afterwards. Um, we have not pronounced very clearly, and I'm not going to today, on the appropriate division between public and private, but we are very clear about the merits of in income contingency and the need to have a robust grant scheme to support those who require it. Um, and it is also too soon to pronounce on the impact of the recent changes in England. Uh, what I would stress, and this has been picked up by others earlier in the day, is the importance of providing better information to students and to their families and employers. Market failure is caused partially by imperfect information and there is, there is evidence that the less advantaged students are more likely to underestimate the nest benefits of tertiary education, to be less well informed about the risks, and to be more sensitive to price changes. Okay, that's fine, thank you. It's also undoubtedly the case that people are more sensitive to value for money when it concerns funds they've paid directly rather than money they have paid or will pay through the tax system. I should go quickly through the international market. The export of education services, which is what you're considered to be doing if you bring students to your country and make them pay, muddies the country-based analysis somewhat. It makes it more difficult for people like us to produce comparable indicators, but it's spawned an industry of international ranking, um, which I would, could go on at some length about its um, pernicious effects it, it has on university mission and reputation. Um, I just want to move to something which may, which we haven't talked about um, very much. The um, costs of higher education, of course, are not limited to tuition. The cost of the living cost and foregone income are perhaps far higher factors and they're much less likely to be taken into account. Um, it remains the case in all of the OECD countries that there is a net benefit from investing in higher education. This chart, and the reason I've shown you with these two slides, is that um, men who have a tertiary education in the United Kingdom earn more than those who have not. 
um, but it's actually below the OECD average. If you do the same analysis for women, the UK moves quite a long way over to the left-hand side of the average. That's also true of Greece, but I'm not quite sure what that tells us. Um, That gives me an excuse, perhaps, to throw in one more uh, personal reference and and a final international thought, perhaps not so much about funding as such. Um, My wife was one of those who chose not to take up a university place when she left school in 1972, but she now has more degrees than I do, um, all through study at a distance or as a mature student. The first of them was through the Open University, which is another great British invention of the 1960s. And I think as we enter a world of MOOCs, we might do worse than reflect on what the experience of that institution may have to tell us. And I look forward to hearing from their representative later on. Um, As I sort of hinted in my question, we we, we talked about Sputnik at the beginning. UK policy seems often to be panicked by international comparisons, um, but is less likely to be informed by them in, in the way that many other OECD countries are. International experience doesn't seem to be, in my opinion, to be widely referenced in many reports. I think you probably heard the word Bologna used more often this afternoon by Gail Winkler than you will have heard it in um, ten years of previous conferences. Fruit flies and turtles. Um, I think Australia and the Netherlands would be candidates for fruit fly status in having had um, repeated uh, reports and changes in legislation. Um, Many other systems have not dared to think about change from a systemic perspective and are perhaps suffering as a result. Um, I don't recommend reviews every two or three years, but uh, perhaps Finland may strike the right balance, you know, recognising the value of a university in each major centre, having a closely defined, clearly defined binary system, emphasising quality and evaluation for improvement, and now embracing a rationalisation and merger. Last sentence, I promise. The, on the question of standards, which was raised this morning, um, I, one of the more interesting things we've produced in the last few weeks is the survey of adult skills. And I would just humbly suggest that it's not standards of those who go into higher education you need to worry about, but those who don't. Thank you. Well, we're now going to turn to Anya Vinol's previous colleague, who's now, I see, Cambridge. Um, Congratulations to her for that. Um, And we're going to look at the question, how has this expansion been distributed across the the classes, the income groups, and so on? So the distributional issues. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, It's a real honour to speak at such a a significant conference. Um, And as Harris just said, I'm going to talk about um, how post-Robbins the landscape has changed. And I'm going to ask the question, how representative is our higher education system now, i.e. how have we expanded it 
and does it look like our wider population and if not, why not? So if we um, head back to Robbins as we've done quite a few times today um, I found it made very salutary reading when you read bits of Robbins closely followed by bits of the Brown Review and what really struck me most was the optimism of Robbins particularly about massification um, is palpable when you read it. His talk about increased opportunity for all um, and this scope to really widen participation in higher education to a much wider range of people than hitherto. And if you roll forward the decades, of course, to Brown, he's much more concerned about how we pay for the mass system that we have created. Um, And today, hopefully, I'll convince you that those two things are not unrelated. Um, But massification certainly should have been a huge boon for those who were most interested in widening participation. Um, And if you take a very long-term view, it is indeed the, the case that we have radically improve the chances um, of going to university for a wide range of people. The picture here, if you can't see at the back, basically the blue line gives you the higher education participation rate of students from non-manual backgrounds. The red line at the bottom, as you can imagine, is the HE participation rate for students from manual backgrounds. You don't need to read the numbers to see, yes, they go up massively over the period. So In some sense, the answer to the essay question, did we widen participation post-Robbins, is most clearly yes. We have massively increased the participation of students from poorer backgrounds. In fact, the participation rate was around 4% at the time of Robbins for those from manual backgrounds. Roll forward to the turn of the century, and it's increased to around 20%, so fantastic. But of course, there are many who would look at this picture and say it represents a massive failure of policy because if you look carefully at the lines, uh, you'll notice that, in fact, they widen. So your relative chances of going to university as a poor student actually worsened over this period. Put some numbers on it. At the time of Robbins, the socioeconomic gap, if I can call it that, between uh, non-manual and manual background was around about 23 percentage points in terms of your likelihood of going to university. That increased to 30 percentage points. Now, we don't want to necessarily dwell on those exact numbers, but I think it is interesting to reflect on the fact that, yes, we massified the system, but at the same time, we had um, an increasing relative selectivity. And why is obviously something we need to think about. But I think what people have taken from that picture or from from the trends that we observe is that education is not necessarily the great social leveller that we expected it to be. And again, if we go back to Robbins and read what he said, it's very clear that education was going to be the route by which people were going to achieve social mobility. And yet, despite the fact that we've increased participation in higher education so much, and despite the strong demand for, for very skilled people in the labour market, it remains the case that the biggest single predictor of whether or not you're likely to go to university is your family background. Um, And clearly this means that, in some sense, we have failed to rise to the challenge of widening participation in a a genuine sense. So the work I'm going to um, talk about for the rest of my talk draws on a number of projects, um, including some work that we've published in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, and we colleagues here, particularly John Micklewright and Claire Crawford, Um, What we've been looking at is um, the higher education participation rate of different um, socioeconomic groups. And again, if you can't see the numbers, it doesn't really matter. So the top line, unsurprisingly, is the higher education participation rate of the highest group, 
socioeconomic group. The bottom line is the uh, participation rate of the, the bottom quintile. Um, and there are two things to take from this picture. The lines are flat, so broadly speaking, um, if you take the long view, higher education participation is not doing a lot during this period. That's actually quite significant, of course, because during this period we've had a lot of financial reform, not least of which we had the big, a big, not the big, a big fee increase in 2006-07. And yet, overall, as the bars suggest, the higher education participation rate is not doing much. If you look even more closely, you can see, almost imperceptibly, probably from the back, completely imperceptibly, but the, the lines actually do narrow somewhat. Okay? So over this period that we've experienced quite radical financial change and um, all the, 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 kind of the upheaval that we've been talking about through the conference, we actually see a slight narrowing of the socioeconomic gap. Um, now, this may be familiar to lots of you, but I think it's quite striking, and it's certainly not familiar territory to the general public, I would say. The other thing that Robbins was very concerned about was the, the segregation and the structure of our higher education system, and we've heard a lot about that already today. And I've, I put up a quote here which I think illustrates his point. He was concerned um, about social segregation, but he was also concerned about academic segregation, his vision was one of new institutions. His vision was one where a far greater number of institutions would have uh, equal attraction, as he put it, to the elite at that time, Oxford and Cambridge. And I think we can claim some success in this regard. I mean, clearly, the elite students do now go to a wider range of institutions and not just Oxford and Cambridge. Um, but I think what Robbins did put his finger on was the need to think about the type of higher education that students are accessing. He makes the point that the reason why we should be worried about this is not just because of the implications for the system itself and the, so the social segregation we find in our universities, although that might be worrying, but it's what it means for students when they leave university. And he pointed out that you know, attendance at one of these elite institutions then sets students apart from everybody else. Uh, pretty much for the rest of their life as they went on to have much greater economic success. And this is the reason why in our work we've um, focused not just on whether or not students go to university but also the type of institution that they've attended. Um, so here what we're trying to do is look at the higher education participation rate not of just going to university but going to what we've called a high status or an elite um, institution now, clearly, you know, we can argue about how you define elite institution. Um, and the fact that we have to argue about it probably says that Robbins was right about lots of issues around segregation within the system. But what we've done is we've defined it according to research rankings, for better or for worse. And what we've identified essentially is um, Oxbridge plus Russell Group and then any other institution that achieves a research ranking that's at least the same as the lowest in the Russell Group. And when we do that, we identify an elite group of institutions that are roughly taking um, the top 20% of higher education students. So when we define it, define it in this way, we can then look and say, of those who are going to university, uh, how does your chance of attending one of these elite institutions vary according to your socioeconomic background? And again, the, the main thing to take from this picture is, first of all, the lines are far apart. Your chance of going to university is obviously much, uh, an elite institution is much greater if you come from a higher socioeconomic background. 
But the lines are also relatively stable over this period. So again, despite the recent history of financial change, we're still looking at a system that certainly hasn't got worse if we're focused specifically on the issue of uh, widening participation and the representation of poor students in our universities. So what do we conclude from that evidence? Well, um, obviously the most important conclusion is that we have massive socioeconomic gaps in access to university and in particular access to elite institutions. So there's no doubt um, that this is a major issue. But other work suggests that the reason for these gaps is very much that poorer students have uh, lower levels of prior achievement all the way through the system. Um, and it's not simply that they aren't applying to university or that they're being turned away by universities. It's that they have lower achievement prior to that. Um, and indeed, uh, in recent work by Jake Anders, he's also showed that gaps and John Micaret, gaps in aspiration also open up as they pass through their teenage years. So I think we understand why we have this problem of very low representation of poor students in higher education. But the point I'm making, of course, is that it's not necessarily linked to what we're doing in higher education. The other thing I wanted to say was that you might think that um, things would change pre and post the introduction of fees. Um, And so what we've done here is we've measured the gap. Now, these bars, although you can't see it perhaps from from the back are actually very small in in magnitude. What they're showing is the uh, percentage point difference in your likelihood of going to university, allowing for all the other factors that vary across different types of pupil, and in particular allowing for prior achievement. So essentially we're asking the question, if we have two students, they have similar characteristics, they have similar levels of prior achievement, what's the chances that they will go to university if they come from a poor background versus a, a wealthier background? Um, And the answer is around about four percentage points in terms of participating at all and uh, around about one percentage point difference in terms of attending an elite institution. Um, Again, you know, the numbers no doubt will change over time, but again, this reinforces this idea that the problem of widening participation is about low levels of prior achievement, not about what's happening in the sector. And remember that here I'm showing you green bars, which are before the fee increase in 2006-07, and the blue bars are afterwards. And again, if anything, the gap has narrowed. Okay? I think this comes back to a point that a number of other speakers have made, that there's no direct connection between how you finance your higher education system per se and widening participation. It's the mechanisms by which you ask students to repay, whether or not they're having to pay fees up front, Um, you know, the generosities of the subsidies, etc., that will make a difference. It's not simply whether or not they contribute to the costs. So I've said that the reason why we have these large socioeconomic gaps is because um, prior achievement differences emerge very early in the system. Um, And this is a a picture that kind of shows visually those gaps um, from age three on the left-hand side right through to age 16, um, the top obviously being more advantaged children and the bottom being the lowest quintile. Now, what I wanted to show with this was actually students start school at a disadvantage if they come from a poorer background, but it does worsen as they progress through the primary system um, and it levels out as you go through secondary. 
Now, that is not obviously suggesting that the primary system is causing a worsening of the socioeconomic gap, but I think you can say that our current school system and the way we've arranged it isn't reducing the socioeconomic gaps that we see between children. And until we actually try and get a handle on that, we're not really going to make massive inroads, in my view, to widening participation in higher education. And so this picture, if you like, is the story of where we need further action. But it would be remiss to not consider other underrepresented groups. So I've focused uh, in the pictures I've, I've shown you on undergraduates and young undergraduates at that, 18, 19-year-olds. Um, but of course there are many other groups that we might be interested in from a widening participation perspective. Robbins was most concerned, I think, about the participation of women, moved forward to Deering, and you know, interest had widened to minority ethnic groups and to mature students. Um, and some concern in Brown too. Uh, and some very interesting work by John Thompson and Baron Bergrania here has focused on looking at the participation of mature and part-time students. And there are certainly reasons for concern here. Um, their evidence suggests quite a dramatic fall in the participation rate of uh, part-time students. And it's been in the media a lot, as you know. Probably around 70% decline since 2003-04. Now, many of those part-time students may well be students that are traditionally underrepresented. But of course, many of them will not be. Many of them will be um, relatively affluent adults pursuing other forms of higher education study. And I think there's a lot more we need to do to understand the implications of the decline in the part-time market. We know some of the reasons why there might be a decline. I mean, first of all, some of the patterns that you see about declining numbers are evident in other countries of the UK. So it is not, again, simply about tuition fees. Um, But equally, when part-time students became eligible for tuition fees, loans, you would think that the situation would have improved in England. Um, And it very much didn't. Um, And in their analysis, um, they suggest that this is potentially because many part-time students turn out not to be eligible, in fact, for loans. Anyone who's studying at the same level, anyone who's uh, going for a professional qualification, uh, will not be eligible for a loan. So in essence, what's happened is that the market has freed up, the tuition subsidy from Hefke has been removed, so universities are putting up the price, and at the same time, perhaps only around a third of those who were... um, uh, thinking of being part-time students are actually eligible for any um, support with that. So it's definitely a group that we need to be worried about. Other underrepresented groups I think is a lot more of a positive story. Uh, Certainly in terms of women, uh, there is now no gender gap per se in higher education participation, although obviously in some subject areas this remains concern. But again, when it comes to minority ethnic groups and their participation in higher education, the story is quite positive, not only have um, their higher education participation rates increased, but also they're more likely to attend elite institutions. Um, And although there are differences across different minority ethnic groups, generally it's quite a positive story. But again, actually, when you look into that, it's not because something's happening in higher education. It's because if you look in secondary education, the education achievement of minority ethnic children has um, increased dramatically and that is then rolling forward so that they have uh, improved rates of higher education participation. So where next? Um, So increased fees, at least up to now, has not 
reduced access. Um, that's not to say we don't have a problem, but the problem won't be sorted in higher education, in my view. Um, we've seen some marginal improvement, probably down to some gains in the secondary system and a narrowing of the socioeconomic gap at GCSE. I think we need to be extremely cautious, however, of using past performance as a guide to future performance because moving forward to the kinds of fees that we're talking about, the problems of debt aversion that people have mentioned and lots of other factors coming into the mix, I don't think you can conclude from the evidence we've presented here that there will never be a problem of access by poorer students, but merely that the debate needs to move on and recognise that thus far there hasn't been a major impact. Um, The other thing is, in the discussions we were having earlier today, I think it's quite interesting that we're talking about a market in higher education and the dangers that come with it. But it is a very strange kind of market because it's a massively underwritten, heavily subsidised by the state market. Um, And this, of course, may have had advantages when it comes to thinking about widening participation. So the subsidies associated with student loans are considerable. Uh, Undoubtedly, this has shielded students from risk. Um, And we might celebrate that um, as one reason why we haven't seen a worsening of um, the participation of students from poor backgrounds. But if I can take you back to the picture I showed you earlier where we saw large socioeconomic gaps in education achievement through primary and secondary school, we might actually be a little bit worried about this. Because if we're going to solve the problem of poor achievement by poor kids, we need to invest in our school system. We need to invest in universal provision. Um, And if um, expenditure on higher education is coming out of that investment in universal provision, then potentially we are actually, well, we're certainly not making the widening participation quest um, any easier. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting we shouldn't subsidise higher education. I'm just merely pointing out that actually if you're serious about tackling widening participation, um, it's investment earlier that we need to be thinking about. And the last government, um, and this one too, should be commended for shifting the balance of expenditure somewhat towards the earlier years of of the schooling system for good reason. Um, In terms of the shape of our higher education sector... Um, the shape of our higher education sector. I talked about the social segregation, and I think this point's been um, touched on already. Where we have a highly socially segregated system, segregated both by social background, so disproportionate numbers of poor students located in uh, a few institutions, and equally you know, disproportionate numbers of, of independently educated students clustered in some elite institutions, it makes it very difficult um, for competition to emerge. So in our model of the market, I think we need to be mindful that that doesn't match the reality of what's on the ground in terms of the structure of the system. And in some sense, when we see uh, social segregation across our higher education system, um, it's those very stable hierarchies that may make it quite difficult for the market to emerge. And the two are actually inextricably linked, I think. Um, Now I take the points made earlier very uh, seriously about being careful of quantifying things. I'm sure I'm very guilty of that, but um, I think that one of the issues we do need to face in in higher education is how we would make a market work better if we're committed to this route. Um, We talked about the need for better information. Well, you know, one obvious thing is to think about measuring what universities add in terms of value. 
um, as opposed to simply looking at their, their, their social intake or their, uh, the achievement of their students as they go into the university. I think there are major, major dangers in this area, and I think I would urge um, policymakers and, and others to really think about some of the problems that have emerged from the secondary school system and the difficulties of operating value-added measures and league tables in an effective manner that doesn't distort uh, what's actually happening in the sector. That said, clearly students go to university for many reasons, not least of which because they would like to have better employment prospects, and I don't think in the sector we can kind of hide from that. So finally, and just as a a sort of a passing note, um, if you're interested in social mobility and what widening participation really means, then obviously what we need to do is think about what students do when they go beyond higher education and into the labour market. And in some recent work with both Lindsay McMillan and Claire and Haroon Chowdhury, um, we've been looking at what happens to graduates after after they leave the system. And it's interesting, if you compare graduates who come from the same institution, have the same degree class, have the same A-levels, have the same characteristics, you still find that those who come from more socially advantaged backgrounds have um, an advantage either in terms of earnings or in terms of the type of job that they get. Um, And I think that's quite a striking result Um, and it would suggest again that if we're serious about social mobility it's not going to be necessarily all solved by focusing on higher education and yet the debate on social mobility has largely focused I think on higher education so maybe it's time that we shifted our, our discussions more broadly than that. Thank you. Well, now we're going to end with Nick Barr, who's going to look at the implications of the really very significant changes that took place to higher education funding in in England, one should say. And uh, so we're looking forward to hearing from you, Nick. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's a delighted to see that David Willits is here. This conference has grown from his initial suggestion. Um, I was reflecting on the fact that he and I first discussed these matters in a, a BBC car uh, after doing a broadcast in 1988, and I'm somewhat shocked to realise that that's 25 years ago. Uh, my memories of, of, of Lionel go back quite a bit further. To to show how much the world has changed, I can remember in the mid-1970s, Lionel Robbins heading up our library appeal for the quite unimaginably large and unachievable sum of one and three quarter million pounds. And he made it. But at the time, it was revolutionary. Um, Let me start off with some background stuff, very briefly. Um, The history of ideas, income contingent repayments. Um, The original idea goes back to Milton Friedman in 1955, which 
I can recommend. It's the most marvellous read. There's nothing that I or colleagues have said since then that he didn't say. Uh, In evidence to the Robbins Committee, um, Alan Peacock and Jack Wiseman of the LSE uh, submitted evidence about income contingent repayments. So did Alan Preston, who was later to come to the school. Mark Blaug was writing about it in the 1960s. Uh, Howard Glenister wrote... uh, a paper on graduate tax in 1968 uh, that was republished 25 years later. It's an idea with, uh, uh, with legs. I got involved from the 1980s and people like Alan Peacock, Mark Blauk, Howard were all very <laughs> supportive. Uh, Meghna Desai, I remember, who was here this morning, uh, took time out of his summer holiday to read one of my early papers. Uh, Mervyn King in 1988 was the first person to suggest the analogy of student loan repayments as analogous to national insurance repayments, uh, which was such a good idea that I won a prize for it. (laughs) (laughs) Let me skip over the history of student finance and talk a bit about the drivers of change. Um, You could argue that 50 years ago, higher education wasn't really very important in economic terms. It was part of the, the cultural life of the nation, like the, 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 the National Gallery or the Opera House. Um, today, it matters. It matters to transmit knowledge, as always, to promote core values, as always, uh, to develop knowledge for its own sake, as always. That hasn't changed, but today it's got an additional task, which is to promote economic growth in a competitive economy. Skill-biased technological change, to use the jargon, is driving up the demand for skills. We've heard about that. Separately, skills go out of date more quickly. So you need not only more people getting training, but repeated training. So it's no accident that participation rates have risen in all countries, and no sign that these trends are slow. And this shows uh, what arose out of Lord Robin's report recommending expansion. These are participation rates uh, from 1950 to 2010. You can see what has happened. So my starting point is three objectives of higher education for NATS. They should assist promoting quality, both of teaching and research. Higher education for NATS should promote access. And thirdly, it should ensure the size of the sector is large enough. So you've got three objectives, quality, access and size. So let me briefly summarise what we know. Um, Upward pressure on demand for skills runs head-on into fiscal constraints. That creates a case for cost-sharing between the beneficiary and the taxpayer. But the beneficiary, the student, is broke, in the jargon, credit constraint. So you need a system whereby the beneficiary can pay, but as a graduate, not as a student. An economic theory offers some useful lessons on that. Um, Four lessons very briefly. First of all, graduates should share in the costs of their degrees, not students. Students, as I've said, are broke. It's graduates who should repay. And the argument is very straightforward. Higher education has social benefits, so it's right that the taxpayer should share in the costs. But higher education also has enormous private benefits, not just financial benefits, but job satisfaction and uh, non-pecuniary benefits like that. 
So graduates should pay, students get it free. Lesson two, well-designed loans have core characteristics. They should be large enough to cover fees and living costs. Uh, They should have income-contingent repayments, in other words, repayments that are X percent of a graduate's subsequent earnings. That design has inbuilt insurance against inability to repay, which is both efficient and equitable. And thirdly, student loans should have an interest rate related to the government's cost of borrowing. Um, This slide illustrates um, some payslips. All I would suggest people look at is this shows what people pay per month in income tax and national insurance contributions, and it's a frighteningly large amount, and the line underneath shows what the loan repayments are, and it's a lot smaller. So loan repayments are not category sleepless nights. They are category pain in the butt. It's a small additional deduction after income tax and national insurance contributions. The third lesson is that competition between universities helps students. Uh, I'm happy to come back to that in question. I'm in Q&A. I'm sure that that's an important part of the story, though, of course, not the whole part of the story. And the fourth lesson is, when I talk about the usefulness of market forces, no sensible person has ever advocated free markets for higher education. We're talking about regulated markets in which government has a series of major and continuing roles to provide taxpayer support, to ensure that there's a good loan scheme, to ensure that policies are in place that widen participation, to ensure that there is effective quality assurance. The government doesn't have to do the quality assurance, but it has to make sure it's there, to set incentives to redistribute within higher education, to finance research, etc. So... Four lessons from economic theory that shapes the analysis of higher education finance. On widening participation, I'm not going to say very much because uh, Anna has already discussed it and much of what I say uh, draws on her work. Um, But a few words. There's something that I call pub economics. Pub economics is something that's obviously right and everybody knows it's right, but it's wrong. And it's pub economics to argue that free higher education widens participation and that fees harm it. As, as we've heard from Anna, access is much more a 0 18 problem than an 18-plus problem. If you ask what stops people going to university, you can cluster them in two sets of constraints. Credit constraints, young people can't afford to go to university, a good loan system fixes that problem for most people. More importantly are constraints with earlier roots, and there's a growing awareness, which uh, Anna's presentation has made very clear, that the major impediments to participation happen earlier in the system, lack of attainment in school, deficient information, uh, things like uncertainty. Early child development is central. There's more and more evidence on critical developmental windows. Um, August babies, nice example. A, an English baby born in August will do less well in school than one who is born in September. And that effect persists 
through to university entrance if you don't do anything about it. And the reason is very straightforward. You start school in England the 1st of September after your fourth birthday. So if you're born in late August, you start school when you're just four. If you're born in early September, you start when you are nearly five. That's a 25% developmental difference. A four-year-old is tiny and doesn't have the stamina of a five-year-old. And common sense might say it'll come out in the wash. It doesn't. So early child development really matters. If I'm allowed only one diagram to illustrate the argument, let me use this one. Um, The top bar of the histogram shows the participation rate in higher education of people with the very best A-levels, and it's sort of almost 100%. The second bar shows people with good but not quite such good A-levels, etc. So what this shows is the better your A-levels, the, the, the more likely you are to go to university, which is obvious and deeply boring. What's interesting is the light blue bar are students from the top three socioeconomic groups, the dark blue bar, students from the bottom three socioeconomic groups. So what this says is, get them to decent A-levels and you've cracked it. Now, there's more to it than that, but the point that this makes is, it's what happens in school that determines participation. So the right policies to widen participation are policies to address credit constraints, financial support to complete high school, uh, a good loan system for universities, flexible options for part-time study to give students a low-cost experiment, and alongside those, policies to address prior constraints, increased emphasis on early child development, (coughs) action to improve school outcomes, um, etc. And my soundbite is from Charles Clark, whom I'm delighted to see here today, slightly losing his rag at an NUS debate. If I were a real socialist, he said, I wouldn't spend a penny on higher education. I'd spend it all on nursery education. And he didn't mean that literally any more than I do, but there is a very important grain of truth in that. So, just to conclude on participation... This isn't just an exercise in logic chopping. The the argument is important. Free is just another word for someone else pays. And you have to ask, who is it who goes to university and who pays? Pub economics leads to the wrong diagnosis and therefore to the wrong description. So what theory gives us is a strategy uh, with three elements. How do you achieve the objectives of quality and size? You finance universities from a mix of taxation and variable fees. How do you fix credit constraints? Answer, loans are a good system of loans. Now, I did this as a double act for many years with a friend and colleague, Ian Crawford, who was a hard-nosed Scot, and he would nag at me and say, why do you keep whining on about support for students for poor backgrounds? He'd say, all you need is fees and a good system of income contingent loans, which is a no-lose bet. And he he badgered me uh, sufficiently that I finally worked out the answer. If the world consisted only of well-informed students with good school education, he was right. You've got fees and loans with income contingent repayments. You've sorted it. It's because 
some students face the prior constraints that I've talked about, that you need the third element, which are the policies to address prior constraints on participation, and we've talked about those. So that's theory on how you design finance, what really uh, determines participation. Let me use uh, my remaining time to talk about the evidence. Um, The reforms in 2006 got it broadly right. I said a strategy with three elements. The 2006 uh, strategy um, had all three elements, financing universities through a mixture of taxpayer support and variable fees, um, addressing credit, uh, credit constraints through income contingent loans, which covered both fees and living costs, and through policies to address earlier constraints like the literacy hour, the numeracy hour, education maintenance allowances, uh, aim higher, etc. So that's the theory. What happened? Now, I know slides with lots of numbers are not good, but these do tell a powerful story. Um, this is 2006. This is 2012. Result one, more resources for universities. Tuition fee income from home and EU undergraduates increased by nearly 87%. So more fee income from universities, and you say, oh, but taxpayer support got withdrawn. It didn't. Taxpayer support remained broadly constant. So you've got more money for universities, which helps uh, with quality. Secondly, you've got more financial support for students. The number of student awards rose by 26%. Expenditure on student awards rose by 78%. Thirdly, you had more students. New entrants increased over the period by 20%. And finally, wider participation. The percentage going to university from the most disadvantaged backgrounds Um, applying to university from the most disadvantaged backgrounds rose from 12% in 2006 to 18.4% in 2011-12. So an increase of slightly over 50%. So um, this is what happened. It's very much a tribute to Charles Clark and Andrew Adonis that they kept the strategy together um, so that we did get these good results. And on improved participation, there was a a funding council report whose conclusion was, quote, young people from the 2009-10 cohort living in the most disadvantaged areas are around 30% more likely to enter higher education than they were five years previously. And the researchers were suspicious of changes as large as that over such a short time, so they tracked back to the people's GCSE results, and as Anna has said, surprise, surprise, uh, the GCSE results reflected that. So this shows application rates from people in the most disadvantaged areas uh, from 2004 to 2013. If you say, why is it that participation improved despite the introduction of of higher fees? And the answer is because of policies earlier in the system. So let me come on to where we are now, the 2012 reforms. And... um, I mean, my, my paper on this is, is called um, The Good, The Bad, and The Unprintable. The good is raising the fees cap was the right way to go. Raising the interest rate on student loans, which I haven't had time to talk about, was the right way to go. The bad was 
withdrawing taxpayer subsidy for teaching a lot more than theory suggests is optimal and raising so the other bad thing was raising the threshold at which students start to repay their loans until 2012 the formula was student loan repayments were 9% of a graduate's income above £15,000 a year from last year it's been 9% of earnings above £21,000 a year it's significant I will come back to that in a moment The bit that I regard as unprintable was abolishing education and maintenance allowances, a name higher, two of the policies with a proven track record in widening participation. Now, those policies weren't perfect, and working to improve them would have been a good idea, but wrong way to go. Runs counter to the evidence. (coughs) The bottom line on the 2012 reforms is there is a correctable flaw in the design of the loan system. In the 2006 system, there was an interest subsidy on student loans, which made student loans fantastically expensive to the taxpayer, so eventually student numbers were capped. The 2012 reforms, by raising the interest rate, fixed that problem, but loans continue to be fiscally expensive because of the large increase in the repayment threshold from 15,000 to 21,000. So the new system creates the same problem, the numbers cap, for the same reason, the high cost of loans. So my argument is the strategy is flawed and no amount of clever tinkering can fix a flawed strategy. You need to fix the strategy. Which brings me to my last slide. Where should we be? The 2016 white paper. What should it say? You heard it first here. One partially restore taxpayer support uh, for teaching, what's known as the T-grant. So to bring back a bit more taxpayer support to rebalance. Secondly, if we want to get rid of the numbers cap, we need to reduce the marginal cost to the taxpayer of expanding the system. So reduce the marginal cost of extra students by giving each university a capped teaching grant So LSE gets its money based on 1,000 students. If we choose to accept 1,100, that's fine, but we don't get extra money for the extra 100, at least in the short run. And capping spending on student maintenance grants. Thirdly, you make loans as close to fiscally neutral as possible. There are ways of doing that. I've done work on that with Neil Shepard at Oxford. Um, Fourthly, strengthen the policies that really widen participation restore EMAs and aim higher or successor policies. Think about full first-year scholarships, especially at the elite universities for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, Strengthen qualifications and the pay of nursery school teachers. Now, these policies, I think, are rooted in economic theory and empirical evidence. Um, I like to think that Lionel Robbins would regard them as fitting inheritors of 1963. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to, as before, ask the questions, um, taking two or more at the same time, depending on how many hands we get going up. Uh, I'd like to remind you of all, so so that we don't just get uh, lots of questions directed at Nick about the uh, 
the, the virtues and the, and the problems with the uh, present system, uh, there was, I think, a very interesting set of ideas about uh, comparisons between other countries. And if people have got more questions on that, it would be good too. But nevertheless, I don't want to ration the questions in any way. Questions. Uh, well, let's start one here, and then the front, the front over there. So you start. Thank you, Roy University. It's a question to all the panel, but it was prompted by Nicholas Bar's very interesting analogy between national insurance and the loan system. I think you referred to Melvin King. I recall reading in Josie Harris's biography of Beveridge that the defenders of welfare have found it difficult in the 1980s to resist the neoliberal agenda, in part because of the weak intellectual underpinnings of the, of the welfare state. And she cited, as far as I recall, the contractual model of national insurance. It was an individualist contractual model which sort of undermines collective consideration. And I wonder if you thought that, bearing in mind what Tim O'Shea and Stephen Collini had uh, referred to in our, our earlier session, whether it would be more difficult to defend these general societal um, collective goods that are so important in higher education, where the legal model is this contractual model. Okay. Um, yes. Tim Loynig from the Department for Education and LSE. In the Netherlands, uh, sorry, we know that uh, the RAB charge for female students is much higher than for male students because women are more likely to work part-time. In the Netherlands, uh, student loans become joint when a, a couple form and become a household. And I wonder if the panel have any comment on whether that would be a sensible way to reduce the RAB charge in Britain. Uh, should we start with that last one? <laughs> <laughs> Anna, do you want to have any thoughts about that? Or... Thanks. Anybody? Do you want to? Nick, do you want to have a go? I think my immediate reaction is Tim is being his usual interesting mischievous self. <laughs> um, I think that there are other ways of recovering RAB charge. I think that policies which create incentives against household formation need some very good reason to justify them. And if that was the only way of recovering the loss on student loans, you know, one might have to think about it. But, I mean, what I didn't have time to talk about, where can you recover the money that doesn't get repaid? One, you design the loan right so you get most of it back. Of what you don't get back, you can get it from the taxpayer and or from the cohort of graduates via a redistributive element like social insurance, your question, which we'll have a chance to come back to, and the third source is from universities. So I'd say there are other, um, other less socially divisive sources which have, uh, don't have adverse ref- effects on, on, on family formation. Just to add to that, Tim, I mean, probably in 20 years' time, for female graduates, those taking more than one or two years out of the labour market will be a very tiny proportion of the whole anyway. Um, and if we make progress on the gender pay gap, then it'll be an irrelevant question, I hope. Well, only to add that I suppose it might work in a system where family units were taxed as a, as an, as a single unit, but not yeah, otherwise. Yeah. Not, not right. On the question... That do either of you want to come back on the first question? I mean, I mean, the just relationship between Robbins and, and uh, Beveridge, if you like. <laughs> I mean, Beveridge. I mean, what was interesting about Beveridge is you can say it's individualistic, 
But equally, you can say the essence of beverage was we're all in the same pool. We all pay a premium based on the same average risk probability. And in that sense, it can equally be thought of as a collective arrangement. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it stood the test of time so well. Um, The more general point is social insurance is mandatory. Because it's mandatory, you can make it very actuarial if you want to, like certain types of pension design, or you can build redistribution into it. And how much redistribution you do build in is a matter of choice. And one of the loan designs based on a social insurance model, uh, one that they, they tried in New Zealand and one that they've got in Hungary, is where the taxpayer doesn't support the loan at all. The loss on the loan is picked up through a cohort risk premium on the cohort of borrowers. So you get solidarity within the cohort of borrowers. Well, the only thing to add, I mean, I suppose we could do a thought experiment. If you had 100% participation in higher education and it became universal provision, would we be happy that the taxpayer then funds it? And and the answer to some would be quite clearly yes. Uh, Others would still say that there are advantages of trying to introduce some elements of, of competition between institutions in and of itself. Right, some other questions. One there, uh, and then one over there, yes. So, uh, Helen Cresta, University of Oxford. We've talked about who should pay. One um, possible... Um, Could you hold your mic a bit? Sorry. Um, we've talked about who should pay, but we haven't talked about the employer as a possible contributor, somebody else who benefits from higher education. Do the panel have views on that and perhaps international models for how that might work? This was over here. Should we start with the secondary school yes. question? Okay. Um, I completely take your point about grammar schools being an important route at a, in a period of time, but um, sort of empirically, they were never a major means by which you widened participation in higher education. I mean, the proportion of students coming from very poor backgrounds who access grammar remained relatively small. So I think we need to kind of be mindful of that. And it's still true, the 164 that are around today are still very socially selective. Um, In terms of what can we do, um, I don't think we should be only investing in early years. Quite clearly, we have to accept that education is is a broad endeavour and it's a cumulative endeavour, and we need um, persistent investment throughout the period. There is good evidence now that where we've invested more, we have produced gains. And so um, if you do it right, spending more can help. 
Um, that's a bit of a difficult message at the current moment, I'm sure. Um, I think there are other things. Uh, I think Nick's point about the education maintenance allowance is a, is a very good one. Where we've actually got policies that work um, and have been proven to work, it does seem a shame that we get rid of them. Can I just on that point is... I said that I'd been, I was one of those who benefited from the grammar school system as well, and it was in an area where it, where it really worked. 25% of my year went to grammar school, 25 went to the technical high school, 50% went to the secondary moderns. There was movement between the two. Um, that We're not going back there, but there was something about the um, flexibility and, I suppose, individualisation of the system. That's what we can do now in secondary education. We can tailor... Um, provision more closely to what to individuals' uh, aspirations and uh, and skills. I guess part of the problem is that um, secondary education A-levels, and this is not confined to the United Kingdom, is focused on what you need to do to get into university, and therefore by definition it's going to be um, have an effect on on those. On the the other question about um, whether employers can Support individual students, I guess. They um, pay some taxes. Some employers do, anyway. Um, that can be... I mean, it, it happens in um, postgraduate integration by, by agreement with, um, between individuals and students, and why shouldn't that continue? I don't see it as part of a... Um, there aren't any other... There aren't good examples of this that you... I'm not that I can pull out of the hat, no. <laughs> Nick, do you want to follow up? Right. Yes, I'm... Um, I mean, on, just briefly on, on the widening participation, grammar schools helped individuals, undoubtedly, of course. But it wasn't a large-scale scheme. I mean, not the right year, but in 2002, before people on low incomes had to pay fees, so when higher education was free, take 100 kids whose parents were professionals and 100 whose parents were working class. 81 of this group went to university, 15 of this group, one five. I mean, it's a shameful record. So grammar schools and quote-unquote free higher education didn't do it, and we now know why and we know what works. On employers, part of the idea that Mervyn King gave me was use national insurance contributions, have a repayment by the graduate as part of his or her NIC, which is loan repayment, have an employer national insurance contribution, which is not loan repayment. It is an employer user charge for graduates. In the days when jobs were for life, it made sense for employers to invest in their workers. Today, with mobile labour markets, it doesn't. Every employer wants to see people trained, but has an incentive to free ride on the training of other employers. employers. If you have a user charge, an employer pays only for those graduates he or she hires, only for as, as long as they continue uh, to work for the firm. So I think there might be some, you know, that would, if one wanted to go down that route, that would be a sensible way of doing it. Right. Um, <coughs> yes, and then, good. So you, there's a speaker in the front. And then, there. Um, I mean, look, looking at the current arrangements for e- English. Uh, undergraduate funding um, I'd just be interested in in a sort of 10 year on prediction I mean the the main anxiety uh, as it was being introduced was about widening participation and Anne has been very very comfortting on that and said well it's a much 
much more deep-seated problem. But there are some other anxieties. Um, <clears throat> a big anxiety is what is happening to demand for postgraduate. Um, if you look at the numbers of, <coughs> of people graduating, English students graduating who then want to go on to postgraduate, well, it's catastrophic. Um, and that seems to be a direct consequence of the changes. Uh, if you look at what has happened to part-time, and I think you know, um, David's earlier comments about it isn't just you know, young undergraduates. We've got a system which has undergraduates and postgraduates and full-time and part-time and late entry. Well, the postgraduate thing looks grim. The part-time thing looks grim. And I'd be particularly interested in Richard's comments on and 10 years from now, we will be getting distortions because of a failure to actually get the loans repaid anyway. So <clears throat> maybe the number one worry we can be told is the problem somewhere else in the system, but it seems to me the postgraduate side, the part-time side, and the long-term uh, effects on the system of not getting the money back, these seem to me all three quite dramatic distortions to English higher education as a consequence of the recent changes. Gwen Babin, Department of Management, LSE. Um, it's about the, we've been talking about the English system. I'm always fascinated by the natural experiment between the countries of the UK mm-hmm. having gone down different paths, with the Scottish system being free for Scots. And if you go to Edinburgh from England, you pay a £9,000 tuition fee charge for the four years. But if you're from France, it's free also. Um, and Wales has gone down the I think it's up to something like 2006 reform with a £3,000 charge with an income contingent loan. So I just wondered what the panel's comments would be on these three different systems. I know Nick's done some work, I think, into the participation rate. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's, let's start with there are problems. Um, which we haven't addressed. Anna, do you want to talk about... Okay, I'm going to start with part-time students. Um, I mean, yes, I think we should be worried about the part-time student market. Um, I think we need to consider the fact that there are downward trends in other countries of the UK who haven't had fees. Um, it's perhaps unsurprising if part-time study is an option, uh, a nice extra for some, uh, that in you know the Great Recession that this would have a calamitous impact on demand for part-time study. Um, we do need to investigate it more closely to make sure that we're not disproportionately affecting certain types of students, I agree. But in and of itself, I wouldn't necessarily be worried in the short term. In the longer term, we do need to think about who we want to be, to have el- be eligible for loans. I mean, that is a major issue as to whether or not we think it's okay to have you know, two bites of the cherry, um, you know, two degrees at the same level. Is that what we mean by widening participation? Is that a group we're worried about or can they fund it themselves? Um, and so I think that is an issue and I totally agree with your comments about the postgraduate market which um, I think is a slightly different set of issues but one which we don't really have a policy response to yet I made the point that because income contingent loans the parameters are not well chosen the loan runs at a loss given my work on communist countries I sometimes get my students to do a little chant. I say, what do subsidies cause? And the answer is, subsidies cause shortages. If you subsidise loans, the Treasury will ration them. That's why they've capped undergraduate numbers. That's why loans for part-time students are rationed and why there are no loans for UK 
postgraduate students, which has to be absolutely batty. I mean, you can hear them sniggering in South Korea. So if my fairy god person allows me only one wish, it's, re- uh, it's lower the repayment threshold on student loans, collect some of the losses from sources other than the taxpayer. That way the Treasury will be less reluctant to expand loan systems to part-time students, postgraduates. And in passing, we've, we've fixed the worry about not getting the loans back, which I agree is a worry. Uh, Gwyn's point on Scotland, Wales, and the other countries of the United Kingdom... Um, I don't understand the system, and my view is life is too short. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> Richard, do you yeah. I mean, I, Comments from a, from a dispassionate view of the right, union yes, debate. I think, the, I think one Europe. of the things... I do not have a, a crystal ball, and neither does anybody else, but I don't think we know enough about why part-time students engage in higher education. I think the recent report has revealed some surprising data. It may be... Um, that some of what they would otherwise have been doing has been replaced by certification or some other form of um, gaining the knowledge that they're seeking, it may, which in which case there's not a problem, or it may be that they're being dissuaded, in which case there is. Individual distortions, I suppose um, I have been a consumer of the um, English higher education market with my three children all coming to this country. Um, that their background is, is atypical, but we know a lot of people who are also sending their children, and they do, I, they're price sensitive. I've noticed a, a greater interest in Edinburgh um, <laughs> in the last few years, but I have to say that amongst the. It, absolutely, and I, t- <laughs> and, I, and I tell everybody so, and there, and, and there are some people, and they're not all Scots, who would go there rather than anywhere else. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any anecdotal evidence that EU demand is falling off or international demand is falling off, actually. Um, quite, quite the opposite. The, so far as I'm aware, I mean, the postgraduate is holding up, but it's because it's, inter- it's, because it's international students. Yeah, yeah. And that so is... The, the internationals are compensated. That's right, yeah. Numbers are quite Okay, I'll, I'll stop it there because there are other people who want to get in. And you, and then you. Yeah, sorry. I would like to talk about the outlier on which is, I think, first slide, which was the case of Korea. Mm-hmm. Where I think, according to the OECD statistics, um, 103% of the cohorts are currently attending higher education. This would seem to actually sort of solve the accident. At the very least, though, it is unclear exactly what the quality of the various universities are that they are attending. One presumes that they are not. But what we do know about Korea is a vast uh, level of graduate unemployment, respectively graduate underemployment, um, which has some implications for the ability to pay back the investment. It is true, and as Richard showed, a lot of the Korean investment is actually family investment rather than... Yes, I, I'm on to a question. If you, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, do, 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 we, do we have any question about are we actually going too far with this? And is it possible under these situations to create more incentives and for more people selling than we should be? Okay. Gareth. <coughs> 
strange, and I question knows about outliers, but a different set of outliers. Um, the Nordic countries stand out on many of several of Richard's tables as not following the trend which um, has been described, been described elsewhere. And I wonder, A, whether there's any lessons to be learned from that, or B, whether the Nordic countries are going to conform to pattern when the OECD thinks they will. Uh, okay, well, some comparative questions yes, now for, um, for a time. Oh, well, let, I guess I have to go first on these ones. I mean, the interesting thing about Korea is it is a fantastic transformation. If you think back to the time of the Robbins Report, the state that Korea was in after the war and the educational attainment they have reached at all levels, aspiration to um, higher education is almost universal. Um, they have no... Um, concerns about, everybody knows the the internal ranking of what are the best universities and what are the less good universities. The big, um, what you hear when you, when if I go to Korea and um, compliment them on their success in improving educational attainment, they just jump up and down, well at least the employers do, and say, but the quality is not good. It's not, we're not actually getting a decent quality. So it's not so much um, a question of um, educating a particular percentage it is, it is more a question of making sure of the relevance and quality of what it is you're teaching. I think one of the th- things which um, makes these international comparisons so difficult is that what institutions that in one country are classified as universities in another country are called technical institutions simply because you've decided yes or no to have a binary divide um, I think there is a, st- a strong case, and it has been. This country is one where, um, technically and professionally oriented higher education has always had a strong place. Employers have been involved in designing syllabuses. This goes back to the pre um, 1992 days, you know, in a way which does not happen in many other countries. So you you are perhaps more likely to get relevance. Um, through the system. The Nordic countries, yes. Well, um, classically, they have a consensus on a higher tax uh, economy than this country and many others are prepared to tolerate. Um, It is not for us to prescribe what things which should be determined by democratic vote. Now, the question is... um, how long that um, will continue. And there are, Sweden has changed its political model recently, um, so some things have changed in Swedish higher education quite dramatically. Whether that will happen in the other Nordic countries is, remains to be seen. I mean, it's, um, that's, that's not an answer in a sense. Um, I think their societies will evolve, but um, no one, so will everybody. Do they have the same social class problems? Well, yes. Yes, yes, they do. Not no, no, you're, you're, no, you're not so bad. Not so <laughs> yes. similar level of achievement. Yeah. If you look at the relationship yeah. between parental education and, and sure. yep, the child's likelihood, I mean, it's not as dissimilar as you yeah. would expect it to I be. I think given actually one of the things which is particularly striking in the um, Nordic countries, if everybody's pointed out, but it bears repeating that the average percentage, it's women as 60% of 
higher education students across the OECD. It's very high in the Nordic countries, and there is a real problem, I think, of, of the boys who might in the past have worked in forestry or agriculture or whatever, um, and, and what they are going to do, because that is where there is an issue. I think hidden in the question about um, Korea was also, I think, a question about whether we can expand the system too far. Um, I think one thing's for sure, as we expand it, it becomes more differentiated and more complex, and you're entering something that is no longer just you know, this sort of higher education. It's, it's a very varied experience. And that means information uh, on how to navigate it and what you're entering into becomes more critical. Um, and that comes back to m- my slide about whether or not we have to start thinking about measuring um, and the dangers associated with doing that in a, in a crude or, or, or different, you know, inappropriate way, uh, but measuring what universities actually do for students and not just contact hours. Right, now, uh, um, last round of questions. Howard? Um, one here and one over there. Yes. Uh, well, a few more, perhaps, from that. Yeah. Uh, I'm Robert Neurick from the University of Sussex, and uh, my question is to Nick Barr, really. Uh, one of your slides, you highlighted the, uh, the, the success of the 2006 reforms, Charles Hart's reforms being the, the three pillars and the widening participation one, and you showed the slide that's showing that A-level rates for the lower disadvantaged groups uh, had improved significantly, and this was a example of the success. And sure enough, when you looked, you saw that the GCSE results of these groups had improved significantly. But the narrative, or one of the, the mainstream narratives today, is that somehow our GCSE system is, is broken and uh, uh, standards have been lowered and so on. So, and there's a lot of discussion about reforming the GCSE system. And I just wondered how effective you think reforming the GCSE system would be in in enhancing the widening participation that seemed to start to increase under after the Clark, Clark reforms. Yep. Um, Rosa Coleman, uh, as the student's union education officer. Um, there seems to be a general theme across all the presentations about uh, prioritising uh, both secondary and primary education, um, or if not prioritising, also focusing on it. Um, and it was also mentioned the role of independent schools um, and fee-paying schools. I just wanted to bring discussions back to that, if I could. Um, so, obviously, we're all aware of the disproportionate representation of fee-paying um, schools in our higher education um, institutions, whether that's British schools or in, in, uh, international fee-paying schools. Um, the Central Trust, of course, love to publish statistics on this. Uh, Famously stating that five schools in the UK um, in fact send more students than 2,000 other schools combined to Oxbridge. Um, four of those, all five of those are uh, in South London, four of those are fee paying at Wheaton, Eaton, Westminster, St. Paul's Girls, and St. Paul's Boys. The fifth is in fact my state school, bizarrely. I just wanted to ask really if you guys could shed light on whether you think this is in fact a problem. And if it is, how we go about alleviating it um, in our wide participation projects, um, especially when you consider that more, um, there are currently more Eton graduates in the cabinet than there are women. So that's the 
So there's first of all the exam uh, GCSE system. I don't, uh, Anna, do you want to talk about that? Yes, I mean, I think it's worth saying that we are quite unique having this breakpoint at GCSE anyway. Um, and for a number of people for a long time have argued that it, it creates some rather unfortunate effects. So it is entirely consistent that you can have GCSEs uh, that are rather um, dumbed down, um, but with rising GCSE achievement, it's still enough to tip people into the next stage and to convince them to stay on at school longer and to enrol in their A-level courses. Uh, They then often have quite a rocky time, um, but they may then go on and have higher levels of achievement. So I don't think that you, just because you saw improvements in GCSE achievement, it means that there aren't problems with some of the uh, GCSE curriculum. And I think the education maintenance allowance issue confirms this. EMA encouraged people to stay on. Um, The evidence on what it did to achievement was a bit more mixed, but the point is if you can keep them in school longer their chances of succeeding somehow at 17 and 18 are higher, and definitely their chances of then going on to higher education are higher. Um, I mean, the easiest thing might be just to take GCSEs away altogether, I guess. I mean, on... Anna, do you want to... There's the, there's the private school question, which you... <laughs> do with you how you want to tackle okay. that. So I would be reluctant to say that anybody's um, success is a, is a problem, but I would draw attention to work by uh, Robin Naylor at the University of Warwick, which suggests that um, when students go through higher education, at the end of it, private school um, students tend to uh, perform less well than um, state school students. So clearly, private schools are very effective at what they do, which is to get a higher level of A-level achievement out of someone who have a, might have a marginally lower of inherent ability, if you want to call it that. Um, I can't quite see what we would do apart from think about contextualised admissions and taking account of school to some extent. Um, We're not, I presume, going to think about dismantling the private school system. I think that would be a a rather strange way of viewing the problem myself. I mean, on, on, on the grade inflation point, I mean, even if you take the worst case, which I don't believe, that you've got serious dilution of standards at GCE... GCSE and A-level, and at university, then maybe at its worst, everything's got worse, but at least you've allowed people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds into that worse higher education system than, than before. Now, I don't believe that for a moment. I mean, what you're saying may be a slight offsetting factor but it would only be a slight offsetting factor. So, so relevant, yes, but I don't think it uh, contradicts the, the broad thrust of the argument, though it might be quantitatively fractionally less powerful. On independent schools, I mean, is it a problem? My answer is yes. Um, but higher education... I mean, there are inequalities in society. I don't like them. I would like to see less inequality... I support policies that reduce them, but you can't get rid of all of them, and you can't expect higher education to get rid of all of them. I mean, I mean as, as, as you've heard from Anna's evidence, you know, it's the problem about getting students from poor backgrounds into university isn't only for universities to solve. It's also for us to solve. Student mentoring, outreach, enormously important, but you need to do other things as well. So all I can say is... Unless we are prepared in a democratic society to make private education illegal, which I would disagree with, then you have to work on the non-private sector and try and improve it, and I think that's what we've been talking about. Right. I think there seem to be two more questions, and I'll take them if they're they're brief. 
Uh, so over there and there. I just answer that well on the yes. first one I, mean, I think from an international perspective um, UK institutions have a degree of autonomy which many institutions in many other countries would welcome whether that's anything to do with fees I don't know and of course the, the post 1992 institutions have a great deal more autonomy than they had pre 92 but that's a uh, comment but on th- this is a tradition which goes a long way back indeed uh, yes yeah, yeah. yeah. um, um Anna, do you want? To? I'll take the easy one and leave you the hard one about. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, do, do fees-free universities from government answer yes when they are fees from non-EU students that are not supported by tax-financed British government loans? Um, at the moment, given the taxpayer, the extent of taxpayer subsidy for loan, um, fees have not freed universities. On the other hand, as Richard said, we do have a long-standing tradition in this country that universities are a lot more autonomous than in other countries. Craig is able to make academic appointments without getting approval from the Ministry of Education, uh, you know, for which loud cheers. I think most school teachers would uh, completely endorse the view that universities are relatively free in comparison anyway. Um, So the the point about uh, regional differences, uh, yes, you could break it down by region. Uh, region, Regional achievement at GCSE and A-level, as you know, varies substantially. Um, So it would add to the policy debate, but it wouldn't take away from the fact that Fundamentally, the question we need to be asking ourselves is why are there such, well, stark differences in pupil achievement across the regions of England, um, probably across the UK, but certainly of England. Um, and that leads into lots of other issues about um, quality differences in provision, uh, some indications that um, aspirations vary by region, but that's probably linked to both the quality of the schools around and Opportunities in the labour market, and those are quite complicated things. Do you want to, any thoughts to end off on? No. Well, um, we've really reached uh, five o'clock, uh, and this, that, so that's drawing to a conclusion this bit of the conference. And I want to thank all the people who've asked questions. We've had a real smorgasbord of interesting questions, so thank you very much for that. Now I want to hand over to Craig Hoon, who's going to tell us about what's happening next. Well, go ahead and thank this panel.
We've had four terrific sessions, and I'm grateful to all the panelists, as well as, once again, to Nick Barr, the organizer. What is going to happen now is we are going to adjourn and move downstairs to the old theater on the ground floor of this building, where we have a final session, which features first David Willits, our minister, who is with us here and will speak there, Baram Bekratnia and Rajay Naik. And so we have a final concluding session, and you will have a chance to translate everything you learned today into questions for David after his speech, beginning at 5.30. So we'll see you downstairs. Thank you for being here. <laughs>